Well, let's talk about Herod for just a moment here. He plays a significant role in the Gospels and in the life of Christ for a good reason. Herod the Great was one of the most wicked rulers of all time. He had uh, 10 wives. He had a number of them, especially the, the one he loved the most. He had her murdered. He was constantly jealous of anybody that got attention. He was fearful his sons wanted his throne, so he had three of them killed. It was said in that day it was better to be his pet than a family member. He uh, had a tremendous ego. He named his sons Herod. So once he's gone, his sons are also known as Herod, and they are also then rulers in the Gospels. Herod, though, is the one who is the ruler when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and then he orders the, the children of Bethlehem to be destroyed in the hopes of killing the Messiah. The Magi go and see him, and they're, of course, warned in a dream to, to stay away from him. So Herod plays a big role, and he pays for his sin. He dies a very violent death in, in agony and pain, and he knows everybody wants him to die. So he orders that when he dies, a number of people in Jerusalem be executed that way, he said there'd be tears on the day that he died. Just a, a tremendously wicked person, and it's important to understand that he had that place because Jesus entered into Bethlehem and, and was born, and we'll see, for a very specific purpose during his reign. Isaiah chapter 9, 600 BC, the, the prophet sees the birth of Christ, and he says, there will be no more gloom for those in distress. In the past, he humbled Zebulun and Naphtali. In the future, he will honor Galilee by the way of the sea. And here's the, the verse I'm sure most know by heart. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Scripture makes it clear that Jesus entered into the world at just the right time. And so he enters in when one of the darkest rulers reigns into one of the darkest times in histories in one of the darkest places on earth. And the people walking in darkness will see a great light. Those living in deep darkness, a light has dawned. For many, it may not be darkness such as in that first century. They faced you know, persecution and violence. But other people, they faced darkness, uh, loneliness, brokenness, fears, hurts. We can all relate to this. It's known as imposter syndrome. It's the idea of hiding who we truly are because we're fearful that if somebody knew who we were, we would be rejected. It's the idea that I'm not as good as I have led other people to believe what would happen if they were to find that out. I'm sure we all can identify with the imposter syndrome. It's the idea, you know, more common today, you put something on social media to look better than maybe things really are. Maybe you put the best parts of your life, your marriage, but maybe inside you're dying inside. And John Ortberg writes about the imposter syndrome. He says, I want the opposite of this. I want to not pretend. I want to own my story, to understand my worth, to rest from trying to impress. I want to let go of other people's opinions. I want to be healed of everything that makes me want to hide. So we're going to look at something here in the Gospels where Jesus calls us out of this idea of you know, this pretend life. Maybe it's a pretend religious life, but inside you know that you're hiding sin. Maybe it's a pretend life where you say, you know what, my relationship's a certain way, but inside you know that it is far from what you need it to be. And, and maybe some are facing, you know, tremendous darkness where they do understand more of what Isaiah is saying, where they're going through real tragedies at this time. The reason Isaiah's words should sound so familiar 
is what happens in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. We're told that leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then it says, to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Now, all those cities that Jesus chose to go and live in, he lived in, you know, this place of Galilee or Capernaum or Nazareth. These are all the same area. And he went to specifically live there. He didn't hide from the darkness. Rather, he went to the dark place so that the people dwelling in darkness could see the great light. What is the idea being portrayed here? No matter what the darkness is, Jesus brings the light into it to drive back that darkness. He sees the pain in the world. He enters into that so that we can find freedom from that slavery of maybe it's sin or brokenness, loneliness, the imposter syndrome, whatever it is. When Jesus sees the darkness, that's where he says, I choose to live there so that the people living in that darkness can see the light. Love this here by Barbara Williams. She, she writes about her understanding from prayer what God's word is to us today. And here's her quote. She says this, It may not be your fault, but it certainly is your time. It may not be your fault, but it certainly is your time. We can all look at challenges in our life in the culture around us, and there's things, whether it's addiction or divorce or loneliness, challenges in the culture where people are at great disagreements on political sides, whatever it might be, and we can look and say, you know what, it's not my fault, but it's, it's my time. It's our time to let the light shine so that people can find the hope that is there in Christ. If we put these two verses together, Isaiah chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 4, and just highlight the, the wording here, notice again what Isaiah says. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in deep darkness, on them a light has dawned. And then Matthew 4 says the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, combining these two ideas of walking and living. And the reality is you can start by walking in darkness and end up dwelling in darkness. We can start by walking a little bit. Maybe it's compromised with sin here and there, and then suddenly you find yourself dwelling in that darkness. We're going to see how Jesus transforms somebody's life so that they can find themselves free from that. No longer walking in darkness, no longer dwelling, no longer living in darkness, but in the light. Again, the idea here being portrayed is what did Jesus see? The darkest place, darkest time, darkest ruler. He says, that's where I'm going to enter into history. The word become flesh. Sometimes you just simply need to, to make a new distinction. And hopefully something we say here today, one or two points you can take and say, you know what? I'm going to implement that into my life. For instance, on the screen is John D. Rockefeller, who died in the early 1900s. He's considered the wealthiest American of all time. Some say he might have been number two and Andrew Carnegie was number one. But these two gentlemen, the top two wealthiest men in American history, and John D. Rockefeller made his money with oil. But it wasn't just oil. You see, he understood there were a lot of people in the oil business. There were other people. They had refineries. He wanted to control railroads, but other people were able to transport oil as well. So he was trying to zero in on what is one thing that he can do, one distinction he could make that would change his life. And he realized 
what people needed were the barrels, the wooden barrels to contain the oil, but harder to get than the wooden barrel was the iron rings around the barrels that held them together. And so he focused where other people didn't and said, we're going to buy up all those iron rings and we'll control the supply and who can transport oil by owning these rings. And that one distinction he made made him, again, the wealthiest person in the world. Sometimes it just takes one thing that hits us in the right place and says, you know what, I can do that. So, for instance, here's Daniel Chidiak, who went from a, a drug addict to a counselor, and he was asked, you know, how did you make such a radical change? And he said, I relentlessly answered the following questions. And so maybe take one or two of these questions or all five and say, you know what, answer these questions, do it in depth this week, do it in depth today. And let your life be changed, knowing Christ enters into the darkness, that we might live in the light. So number one question from Daniel Chidiak, what drives you every day? What drives you every day? If it's self and your own wants, that's a big difference than if it's to, to give, to grow, to thrive. Number two, what are you doing today different from yesterday that will shape tomorrow? Again, most people continue to, to make little to no change, but what could you do today that you didn't do yesterday? Number three, what life-changing decisions are you committed to make today? Number four, what is one thing you can change right now that will prevent a lifetime of pain and instead generate happiness? What is one thing that you could change right now that would eliminate all kinds of pain in your life? And then have the courage to make that change. And number five is simply answer, how can I, and then fill in the blank. So maybe it's how can I be healthy? How can I have the best marriage? How can I push myself, take control, live my faith? You see, most people say, why can't I? Rather, begin to say, how can I? You see, and you live in that place, knowing that Christ has entered in to bring the light into your life, my life, and we ask better questions, give better answers, live a different quality life. Charles Jones writes this about the, the story of Job. We all know the story of Job. He, he has this ideal life, and Satan says to God, you know what? He only is happy. He only praises you because he has everything he wants. And so God allows Satan to test and torment Job to a degree. And Charles Jones writes this, and maybe this is for someone here as well. Charles Jones writes, why did testing come to Job? Job never realized that God allowed it because he was pleased with him. You see, we often think things happen in life and bad things happen and what we interpret as bad things because, you know, there's something wrong. And sometimes, as in the story of Job, things take place in our life because God says there's somebody that's going to be the model and can handle it and come forth with a testimony because they have the strength. You see, if you understand what happens to Job, again, he's got all these challenges and these tragedies that happen because Satan is try, trying to destroy his faith. But notice what he says, Job 23, verses 9 and 10, and maybe take this and add this to your own daily devotionals and prayers this week. Job 23, 9 to 10, he says he's looking for God. He wants to question him about why things are happening he says this, if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he's at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. So Job says, I don't physically see God. 
I'm sure at this point, Satan's hoping he's losing his faith. But notice what Job says. Again, Job 23.10. He says, I don't physically see him. But notice his words here. But he knows the way I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. You see, that's real faith. It's not religion. It's not a, a simple, you know, somebody putting on the imposter syndrome and putting their best face forward and saying religious things and doing religious things. That is faith where somebody says, you know what, life is, is difficult. These mountains are hard to move. A lot of stuff's happening, but I know that God knows what's taking place. And when this is through, I'm going to come forth as gold. You see, that's what faith based upon the knowing that Christ entered the darkness to bring the light, says when this chapter is through, I know I'm going to look like gold. Let me read something uh, maybe familiar to many, the Velveteen Rabbit. A lot of people have written about this uh, parable, this story. It's from 1922, written by Marjorie Williams. And in the story, Many of you may know it. The, the story is about a, a Christmas gift given to a boy, and it's a, it's a stuffed rabbit. He doesn't really like it. Eventually, he, it grows on him. He starts to play with it. Then he becomes you know, so attached to it, plays with it all the time, and essentially the, the, the fur on the stuffed rabbit wears off. And then eventually he puts it on the shelf, and the rabbit's there on the shelf, and next to him is a toy horse. And here's something Marjorie Williams wrote. What is real? Asked the rabbit. Real isn't how you are made, said the horse. It's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you. Then you become real. We're going to see somebody here that's going to be facing this idea of realness here. And it's a story I'm sure many know, but John chapter 4, just a couple verses from this story here. You remember that Jesus is walking through Samaria. He stops at a well. There's a woman. He asks for water. She says, you know, I will get the water. And he says, I can give you water that's living water. You'll never thirst again. She says, I want that. He says, go and get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And in John chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus said to her, You are correct to say you have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What's taking place here is something is very real. She's no longer wanting to, to play the imposter syndrome. She's suddenly going to get very honest and risk, you know, what's he going to say? What happens when that darkness is revealed and it's our own doing? What does Jesus have to say about that? John Ortberg writes about the imposter syndrome. He says the only antidote to the imposter syndrome to do what we don't want to do to make ourselves known. But this presents a problem because everyone else is hiding too. You see, the one person we can't hide from, of course, is Christ. And when he looks at our life and our failings, our shortcomings, our sin, what does he see or think about that? The challenge to come out of the imposter syndrome is to find somebody as iron sharpens iron that you can walk together in faith and share about transparently your weaknesses and fears and doubts. They can do the same. You don't have to hide any longer. And this woman here is tired of hiding. So she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You're right to say you don't. You've had five and now you live with a man. Notice what happens next. John 4, 28, we're told, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town. She was there for water. She's now 
so caught up in this conversation because she's dawning on her who she's talking to. And she's so excited that she runs back to town and leaves her water jar. Let's go back to the Velveteen Rabbit for a moment. One day the boy becomes ill. They call in the doctor. He says you need to you know, burn all the things in the room because they, they might have germs. And that's all the toys and books. And here's what Marjorie Williams writes. The boy was ill and the doctor's orders that the room was to be disinfected and all the books and toys must be burnt. His orders were followed. And the rabbit felt very lonely and thought of what use was it to be loved and lose one's beauty and become real if it all ended like this. It's a moment uh, of honest reflection and desperation. You know, do we see challenges in life and think, you know, is this all there is? Or do we see challenges in life and say, you know what, I believe that Christ entered into the darkness that I might live in the light, and whatever I face, he's going to bring me through it, and I'm going to look like gold because his grace is greater than all my sin. To proclaim like David in Psalm 16:2, where he would say, you know, apart from you, I have no good thing. So in Marjorie Williams, she ends the story like this. A strange thing then happened. Quite the loveliest fairy in the whole world appeared and said, little rabbit, don't you know who I am? I turned toys into real. Wasn't I real before? Asked the rabbit. You were real to the boy because he loved you. Now you shall be real to everyone. And John Ortberg commenting on this story says, Williams calls it becoming real. Perhaps a better word is resurrection. A prince came, and on the third day he became real. And his friends saw him, and they knew the risen one. And if it could happen to him, he promised it would happen to us as well. You see, when we get real, take off the mask, and allow the healing of Christ's grace to enter in, there's not the rejection like people fear with the imposter syndrome. Rather, he speaks to us in the truth and in the light and in the forgiveness and grace. This woman who leaves, she doesn't go back to town and say what maybe the people thought. Rather, here's what she says, John 4, 29, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. What a relief she found no longer having to be fake. No longer having to pretend and simply being able to say, you know, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. The people want to know what happened. And she said, well, he knows everything I ever did. And he told me he's Messiah. And you could just sense the, the love and the grace, even though he knew exactly who I am and exactly what I've done. And how did the people respond? Were they fearful in their own selves? We're told in the next verse, many of the people from that town believed in him because of that woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. You see, that's a longing of every heart to say, you know what, I want to be known and to know, to not have to pretend, to not have to be fake. And Jesus says, you can't hide from him anyway. He knows who we are. And he says, trust that he chooses to enter in into the darkness, that he might bring that light that we no longer find ourselves trapped therein.
to find freedom in him. Love this story here by Helen Morosa. Took place originally in 1959 and then in 1965, the second half. She wrote about the story. It became very popular. She's been interviewed by a number of journalists about the story, you know, because it's so moving. And as she shared, everything happened just like she said. What happened was Helen Morosa was a teacher in Minnesota at St. Mary's Catholic School. She was teaching third grade, and there in her first class was a, was a boy. His name was Mark. And she said Mark was tremendously difficult. He would talk. He would carry on. She would correct him. He would do it five minutes later. This went on every day. And she said it was hard not to be you know, touched by his, you know, his spirit because every time she would correct him, he would say, thank you for teaching me. And she said he wasn't being obnoxious. He really meant it. And she knew he wanted to try better. He just could not sit still. He couldn't quit talking. And every day, several times a day, she would correct him. And several times a day, he would say, thank you for teaching me. Until one day, she finally had enough. And she said, Mark... If you don't stop talking today, I'm going to put tape on your mouth. And sure enough, a few minutes later, he talked some more. So she took out tape and she taped his mouth and walked back to the front of the room, turned around and saw him. And he was smiling and she broke out in laughter and the children laughed. And it continued like this all year until finally that third grade came to an end. And to Helen Morosa's surprise... A few years later, she was teaching a ninth grade math class, and lo and behold, Mark was there. She said he didn't talk now. He was quiet. He would still say thank you for teaching me, but she could tell he was struggling, as was the rest of the class, because the math projects were very difficult. And one day, they were all so frustrated she said, I'm not going to teach math today. She had them take out a sheet of paper and write every student's name down on the piece of paper. And she said, next to their name, write the nicest thing you can about them. That night she went home, combined the lists, put each student's name on a separate list, and then added all the other students' nice comments about them. And the next day she passed out the papers. And she couldn't believe the change as the students were reading all these comments from their classmates. And she could hear them say, I didn't know you knew that, or I didn't know you cared, or I didn't know you noticed. And she said it transformed the, the whole class and what a difference it made. And, and then after that class, she didn't see Mark again. For several years, she didn't know anything about him. And, and then a number of years went by and she got a call from his parents. And, and they explained that Mark had passed away from an illness while overseas. And they were having a, a service and asked her to show up. And sure enough, she did. And when the parents saw her, they said, you must be Mark's teacher. And she said, yes. They said, I want you to know he carried something with him in his wallet every day. And she said, I knew what they were going to pull out of the wallet. Sure enough, it was his list, now battered and torn and taped, his list from school, all the things the student said. But she said, here's what happened next. Mark's classmates started to gather around us. Charlie smiled rather sheepishly and said, I still have my list. It's in the top drawer of my desk at home. Chuck's wife said, Chuck asked me to put this in our wedding album. I have mine too, Marilyn said. It's in my diary. Then Vicki, another classmate, reached into her pocketbook, took out her wallet, and showed her worn and frazzled list to the group. 
I carry it with me at all times. Vicky shared without batting an eyelash, I think we all saved our lists. You see, what happens when, when somebody sees things differently and chooses to live life differently and maybe begins to ask a question like, how can I? And they get tired of playing the imposter syndrome of hiding. And rather they say, instead of being fearful of rejection, let me love and be transparent and give to others. And what a transformation happens. What a difference happens when we can stop and say, you know what? He enters into my life. He entered into the darkness to bring light therein. And he knows everything about me. And he loves me just the same. From a heart of praise, we can truly then say, apart from you, I have no good thing, Jesus. Jesus.